It's a pleasure to be here. I'm sure some of you are wondering. The answer is yes, the drummer is preaching today. Um, It's funny, I've been on this stage about every week for the last uh, two years or so, and this is my first time with a microphone, if that tells you anything, so hopefully I can preach better than I can sing, although I'm pretty sure I can. Uh, Brother Andy texted me about six weeks ago and asked me if I would do this, and Brother Philip let me know that it would be on December 20th, which is the Sunday before Christmas, and he told me, he assured me that it didn't have to be a Christmas sermon. I could talk about whatever I wanted. So I said, okay, I think I'm going to do an Old Testament story because I like Old Testament stories. And the first one that came to mind was Cain and Abel. And so my wife asked me, she said, um, what are you going to preach about? And I told her, I think I'm going to do Cain and Abel. And her response was, well, it's the Sunday before Christmas. And I said, Okay. And I'm looking around, and I think she probably had the right mindset. Um, I'm not going to do explicitly a Christmas story, um, but my goal this morning is to sort of put Christmas into the proper context. Um, It's a pleasure to be here in the church that I've attended since infancy. You know, I remember vaguely playing with Flame Gullage on the floor of a Sunday school class um, in the building next door. We haven't done that in a while, unfortunately. Um, But my goal, like I said this morning, is to put Christmas into the proper context. Now, to give you a little church history, in the second century, about a hundred years after the crucifixion, there was a man named Marcion. And Marcion had some peculiar ideas and beliefs. Um, He believed in what's called ditheism, so that means he believed in two gods. He believed that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were different. And he believed the Old Testament God was the creator of the world and of mankind, but he believed that he was evil, and he believed that the New Testament God was good, and that the goal of the New Testament God was to send his son to subvert the will of the evil Old Testament God and to defeat him. And as a consequence of these beliefs, he actually rejected that the Old Testament was even a Christian scripture at all. And whenever he was compiling his own New Testament into, you know, he compiled the letters of the New Testament writers into his old version, his own version of the New Testament, he actually edited out references to the Old Testament. And for those of you who are well-versed in the New Testament, you know that there are many, many references to the Old Testament, particularly in the work of Acts. Um, But there are something like 2,000 references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, so he had to work pretty hard to edit those out. Now, those views, he was marked as a heretic by the church. Um, It's called the Marcion heresy. And those views don't really remain today. I mean, no Christian would reject that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. But I think that there's a version of this that remains among people, um, that we put a lot of emphasis on the New Testament, rightly so, because we see it as the story of Christ. So it's the story of his life, and the, uh, apost- the apostolic writings about his life. And we put a lot of emphasis on that at the expense of our views on the Old Testament. So we kind of put the Old Testament as almost a, um, an afterthought. And I think that's wrong, and I'm going to show why that's the case. Um, because ultimately, whenever my wife asked me, or whenever she said, well, 
um, you're going to do Cain and Abel the Sunday before Christmas, my response was, well, I can just conclude by talking about Christmas because Cain and Abel, just like the entirety of the Old Testament, is ultimately pointing to Christ. Um, the whole Bible is ultimately pointing to Christ. He is the theme of the Bible, and that includes the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so whenever I said that to her, it sort of dawned on me that that's what I should talk about. And so that's how we're going to put Christmas into context. Now, the only way that we can find Christ in the Old Testament, because we know he's there, but the only way we can do that is if we know what we're looking for in the first place. So Pastor John MacArthur, who's the pastor out in Grace Church, California, he employs what he calls the Where's Waldo strategy. And I'm sure we all know who the Where's Waldo game. You have to find this little character on a page in a book that's full of things and people of different colors. And he says that if you don't know him, meaning if you don't know what Waldo looks like, then you have no chance of finding him. If you kind of know what he looks like, you might be able to find him. But the best way to find him is if you know exactly what he looks like, meaning the red and white striped shirt and the hat. So whenever we are looking for Christ in the Old Testament, we have to first make sure that we know what he looks like. And MacArthur says that there are four ways that we can know, or rather four categories of knowledge that we can have about Jesus. Three of them are in the New Testament, and we know these well, hopefully. One of them is historically. So we know that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us the story of, God, of Christ's life as a historical figure. So his birth, his life, his ministry, and then his death and his resurrection. These are historical facts that we pour over and we study to know about him in that way. The second category is theologically, so the implications of his life on earth. Why did he come? What did he fulfill? And the, um, the epistles talk about this a lot, so the, the writings of Paul and Peter and the like. And then the third category is eschatologically, which just means into the future. So this is what the book of Revelations talks about. So MacArthur says that if we can grasp these three things, it's important that we do it in this order. If you go to the New Testament and we can grasp these three categories, then we can go back to the Old Testament and learn about Christ in the fourth way. And the fourth way is prophetically. So the Old Testament writers writing about him, prophesizing about him, Moses and the other Old Testament writers speaking about things that are to come that are ultimately fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. Now, only once we do all of this, then we can get the full picture, and that's sort of my goal is to talk about this full picture that we can put Christmas into when we're celebrating this week. Now, I'm going to jump around quite a bit as far as verses go, so I'll try to make sure you guys can keep up with me. I know a lot of you like to read along. So I'm going to start in John 5, and um, I'm going to demonstrate that the New Testament talks about this explicitly. And we're going to start with Jesus, because he's the most important source, obviously. Um, in John 5, Jesus is debating with Jews. I believe they're Pharisees in this story. And they're debating his relationship to God. And they're debating um, his behavior on the Sabbath. But they're not debating particular points of the law, but rather whether or not they know Jesus. 
Um, and Jesus obviously is claiming to have a divine prerogative, meaning God sent him to do something, and that he's God's son, and the Jews are rejecting this idea. So John 5, verse 37, Jesus responds to them by saying, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So remember, he's talking to these really well-educated Jews. So they know the Old Testament. They read it every day. I mean, many of them memorize large portions of it. And yet he's telling them, you do not have the word, verse 38, you do not have the word abiding in you. And why is that? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So he's saying that they do not understand. They might know the words, but they don't understand what it means because they don't believe him. This idea that the Old Testament sort of communicates or does communicate the idea of salvation is reflected in 2 Timothy, where Timothy, Timothy says that the books of the Old Testament are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you interpret the Old Testament properly, it gives you the message of salvation. But the only way you can, ter- you can interpret it properly is if you do it through faith in Jesus, if you know him. Um, and this, there's a similar story in Matthew 22. It's kind of funny where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees and they're trying to kind of catch him in a, in a legal contradiction because they heard about this idea of resurrection. And um, they said, well, we know the law says if my brother dies, so there's seven brothers, right? They said, if my brother dies with no children, I'm supposed to marry his wife and raise up children with her. So what happens, Jesus, if we all die, you know, the brother dies seven in a row, she marries each of them, and then she dies, and then we're all resurrected. Which one of us is married to her? Could be kind of an awkward situation. And he says, um, Jesus says to them, Matthew 22, you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. So he basically just tells them, you don't even know what you're talking about because you don't know me. Back in John 5, verse 45, you do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. So he's, remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees here. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So he's saying, ultimately, if we don't believe in Christ, we're rejecting the words of Moses that were written thousands of years before. That he is telling, he is speaking about Christ. Another parable, Luke 16, or a parable, Luke 16. uh, It's about the rich man and Lazarus. I'm sure many of you have heard this one. There's a wealthy man in his house, and he's in his fancy purple clothes. And uh, there's a poor man, Lazarus sitting outside and he's in terrible health and he has sores all over his body and the poor man and the rich man die at the same time and the poor man is sent up to heaven and he sits at Abraham's side and the rich man is sent down to Hades as the Bible calls it here this is Jesus speaking by the way Jesus is telling this parable and he's communicating this idea that we're talking about this morning so the, the rich man is sent down to heaven, and he can see Abraham and Lazarus in heaven. And he sees Lazarus at his right hand. 
And in Luke 16, verse 27, the rich man is begging to Abraham. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, and this is the key part, verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man responds, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, so if someone is resurrected and they see this, they will repent. He said to him, if Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the rich man here is assuming maybe they don't believe you know, the words of the Old Testament now, but if they see someone resurrected, then they will, surely. And Jesus is saying that, no, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they won't be convinced by that either. And, of course, Jesus here is foretelling his own resurrection and rejection by the Jewish people. And further down in Luke, Luke 24, this is the day of Luke's, uh, or excuse me, of Jesus' uh, resurrection. So he was crucified three days earlier. He's resurrected on this day. And he goes to, this is a very common, well-known story. He goes to the road, on the road to Emmaus, he comes across Cleopas and another disciple who was unnamed. And Jesus walks up to them. He reveal, well, he doesn't reveal himself. He walks up to them and talks to them. They don't recognize him. So they don't even know who they're talking to here. And Jesus asks them what they're talking about. And Cleopas basically says, how could you not have heard? You know, we thought we had this redeemer. We thought we had a savior. And three days ago, he was killed. And he was saying this, you know, distraught. He he physically didn't know who he was talking to at this point. Verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones, this is Luke chapter 24, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Cleopas and his, the other disciple, they're literally blind to who's in front of them, but they're also spiritually blind to what the Old Testament is teaching them. So he's saying that it's necessary that Christ should suffer these things. And he's saying that he taught, he interpreted in, to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is saying, the Old Testament is about me. And he taught them about himself by going to the Old Testament. Skipping ahead to verse 44, this is later that evening, he walks over to his um, 11 disciples at that time. They did recognize him. And Jesus says to them, there are, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, meaning before the crucifixion, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the word must here indicates that his suffering and resurrection are central to God's purposes as revealed in the Old Testament. So God's will is mandating that these things happen. Remember back in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? So Christ, Jesus is saying that these things were foretold and are a part of God's will and that they must come to pass. So in order to be fulfilled, the story of the Old Testament is fulfilling the story these things are fulfilling the story of the Old Testament. So you can think of the Bible as being a single book with two parts. 
where the Old Testament is about foretelling and the New Testament is about fulfillment. So Christ is saying that these events must come to pass. His crucifixion was necessary. His suffering was necessary. And then down in verse 45, it says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's showing them the way to understand the Bible. So this is all in the context of him talking about his own death, his own resurrection, all these things that had to come to pass. And then this is what opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And here the scriptures means the Old Testament. Of course, the New Testament didn't exist at this time. So these are some examples of Jesus talking about this concept. He's not the only one. He's the most important source, of course, but he's not the only one. The apostles also talk about it. In John chapter 1, we have Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So he's, a, he's recognizing that the Old Testament, because here he says Moses and the law and the prophets, so that's sort of a catch-all phrase to mean the entire Old Testament. He's recognizing that the entire Old Testament is calling forward or anticipating Christ. And he's recognizing that when he sees them. So we've established that it's not possible to fully understand the Old Testament without knowing Christ. And uh, the, the Apostle John, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn there with me, because I think this is a key, key passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We can only understand the Old Testament if we read it through the lens of who Christ is. And so Paul, who, remember, he's a Jew, so he's talking about his fellow Jews. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, chapter 3, verse 14, But their minds were hardened. So he's referring to the Jews. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Taken away. So he's referencing this veil, this symbolic covering over their eyes. So they're trying to read through um, this veil, but their vision is obscured because they're, of their ignorance of Christ. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So he's saying many people don't fully understand the old covenant. Even the Jews, like I said, who study it every single day, they knew all the words, but they didn't know what they meant because they didn't know Christ. And this principle, because remember, he's writing to Christians in Corinth, so this principle applies to us too. If we don't know Christ, then we don't know what the Old Testament means. Um, so to go to the Old Testament to talk about some examples, the book of Isaiah is the, one of the most, if not the most, frequently quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And Isaiah 53 is one of the most popular examples of this. Um, Kim Harris actually recommended that I talk about this one, so shout out to her. Um, Isaiah chapter 53, the context of this story, well, we have the prophet Isaiah. He's writing to the Israelites. And what had happened was the Israelites and the kingdom of Judah had been kicked out They'd been conquered, and they'd been sent to exile in Babylon. And so many of them had lost their faith in God, but there was a small, what's called a remnant in the Bible, the, the um, small group of true believers who had been maintained and sustained by God. Isaiah was 
one of the remnant, and he was writing from this perspective, that there would come someone in the future, in this, it's usually called the suffering servant here in Isaiah 53, that would deliver the Israelites from exile. And so if you're a Jew and you're reading with the veil, you may think that he'd be talking, talking about a warrior of some kind that would come save you and bring justice and peace. But that's not what it says here. That's actually, if you're reading it from that perspective, Isaiah 53 may seem a little strange. And it's broken up into different parts where it talks about the suffering of the servant, the purposes for his suffering, and the triumph. But we're just going to read a little bit because, of course, this could be an entire sermon in itself. Um, Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So we, referring to the Jews, esteemed him, meaning esteemed meaning respect in this context. So we know Christ, and we know the story of the New Testament. This is pretty obviously talking about that, but it wouldn't make sense necessarily if you didn't know that. Down in verse 4, excuse me, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah is saying that this servant, this coming Messiah, somehow is going to bear the iniquities of the rest of us, being pierced for our transgressions, and we know all of us know that verse well. And then skipping forward to the end where it talks about the triumph. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion among the many. He shall divide the spoil among the strong with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again this idea that he's bearing sin. For someone else, and the idea of intercession, of course, Luke twenty-three, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We know Jesus makes intercession for us. But here, if you um, if you have this veil over your eyes and you don't know Jesus, then this wouldn't be obvious to you. If you were to just to read this without knowing the New Testament, it wouldn't be clear at all what he was talking about. And this is made clear in Acts whenever Philip hears the Ethiopian reading on the road outside of Jerusalem. He's reading out loud, as people often did in those days. He's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip walks up to the Ethiopian and he asks him, do you know what you're reading about? Do you even know what this means? And the Ethiopian says, and this is the verse, how can I unless someone guides me? How can I unless someone guides me? So again, he's referring to this veil. He can't understand what he's reading unless he's guided by someone else. So it says that Philip then uses Isaiah 53 to teach him about Christ. So he didn't have to read Romans 5 to teach him about Christ. He used Isaiah 53, the Old Testament story that was written 700 years earlier. And then throughout Isaiah, there are other examples. Isaiah 7, he was born. He would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, the Savior will be heir to the throne of David. So these are examples of specific prophecies where Christ is specific or the Messiah is specifically referenced in the Old Testament. You know, Isaiah 53 was so popular among 
early Christians as it is today, that the Jews actually stopped using it and started interpreting it in other ways. Even today in Orthodox synagogues, they won't um, read Isaiah 53. They'll just skip right over it. So talk about having a veil. But um, So that's an example of some specific prophecies. There's another broad category of ways that you can see Jesus in the Old Testament. And these are called types. A type just means an example or a symbol where Christ's role and his work are dramatized in the Old Testament rather than spoken about specifically. And one of the big examples of this would be Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son and see it. And I'll read through some of the high-level facts and see if you can see Jesus in this. So we have Abraham the father setting apart his one and only son as a sacrifice. We have Isaac, who, according to Jewish tradition at least, is a grown man at this point. Um, I think there's probably some debate about that. But he's older, and he doesn't resist, as far as we know. He willingly gets up on the altar to be sacrificed. And then Isaac asks his father, where was the lamb for the offering? So they get there, and there's no lamb. In Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And in Genesis twenty-two thirteen, whenever Abraham is about to go through with it, sacrifice his son, God stops him. And Abraham, it says, verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. So just five verses later, we see the fulfillment of what he said. God provided the sacrifice. So in this story, the type, at least at the beginning, the type of Christ is Isaac. He's the son that's willingly being offered up as a sacrifice by his father. And then the type is transferred to the ram, the sacrifice that was offered up by God for himself. And the interesting part about this, this is something I learned during my um, study for today, that the land of Moriah, which is where Abraham took his son to be sacrificed, the land of Moriah is actually the modern-day location of Jerusalem. So 2,000 roughly years later, you have the actual, you know, the fulfillment of this story, of this dramatization, in God sending his son to fulfill the sacrifice um, for our sins in the same location. And this is recognized by John in John chapter 1. He says, he sees Christ walking towards him. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he knew this right away as far as the story goes. And then um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the story of whenever the um, Israelites were delivered from Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness and they get thirsty and they start complaining about being thirsty because they're not, um, they don't have faith. And Moses goes to God and says, these people are thirsty and they're going to kill me. What should I do? And God tells him what to do, which is, of course, to take his staff and strike the rock and the water flowed forth. And quench their thirst. Paul references this story specifically. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. So he's explicitly associating the rock with Jesus. Verse 6. Now these things took place as types for us. So typos is the Greek word here. It means examples. 
These things took place as types for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In the verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example or a type, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul, again, is writing to the Christians in Corinth, and he's saying these aren't just historical stories. They're not just telling us events that happened. They're supposed to be representations of Christ, things that we can look to and learn from so that we might not desire evil as they did, is what Paul says here. And this, of course, applies to us as well if we truly understand what the Old Testament message is, then we can know Christ better in a more complete picture, and I think we should all be striving to do that. And then other examples of types um, with the remaining time I have, just to go through them quickly. Leviticus 17 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So we know, because we know Christ, we know that this is at least related to the idea that Christ shed blood, atoned for our sin. So the sacrificial system, and this is often discussed among theologians, the sacrificial system that is used throughout the Old Testament was in anticipation of what Christ would ultimately do as the final and perfect blood sacrifice for the rest of us. Numbers 35, an interesting story. There is a man guilty of manslaughter and the um, punishment for that is being confined in a city wherever you committed the crime. You have to be confined there and you can't leave, so it's basically a jail sentence. Numbers 35, verse 28, For he must remain in this city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So the death of the high priest in this story somehow changes the legal status of the man who committed landslaughter, manslaughter. So he's no longer liable for the penalty of his crime. The high priest takes his place. And in Psalms 110, related to that, um, this psalm is often cited as being a direct prophecy about Christ. But it says that he'll be a descendant from David. And it talks about his ascension to the right hand of God after his resurrection. But it also claims that the Messiah would inherit the royal priesthood of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a character in the Old Testament who is both a high priest and a king. And this is later confirmed or affirmed in Hebrews 7, um, where the author of Hebrews likens Christ to a descendant of Melchizedek, both a priest and a king. And then we can go, I mean, we can take this concept all the way back to the beginning. The very first verse of the whole Bible is, in the beginning God created. And John 1 says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So this idea of the logos, that Christ was there, active in the events of creation. Colossians 1, he is the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created. So Christ isn't just a man, certainly. He didn't just appear 2,000 years ago or at any point. He was there at the very beginning, actively participating in creation. And then one of the most popular examples of a type is Genesis 3.15. This is after Adam and Eve had committed sin, so they had fallen. 
and God is talking to the serpent. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is a prophecy about what is ultimately fulfilled through Christ and the triumph over sin, over the serpent. So what's interesting here is something I had not noticed is that it's saying that the woman's offspring must suffer in order to triumph. Because you always think about the part that says, he shall bruise your head. So that idea is easy to grasp, that the Messiah is going to crush the serpent. He's going to crush sin. But the sentence ends with, you shall bruise his heel. So the Messiah, the offspring of the woman, has to bear some sort of suffering as well. This verse is often called the Proto-Evangelium. Okay, I practiced pronouncing that this morning. Proto-Evangelium, which just translates to the first gospel, because it's the first example of a promise of redemption from God. And this is all the way back. Remember, this is Genesis 3. So we're talking thousands of years before Christ. So I know I just threw a lot a lot at y'all, but this is, I think, an incredibly important thing to understand. And the central idea here that I want you to take home is that we're God's people, and because of that, under the new covenant, we have been given some things. We know that we've been, we've been given salvation through Christ, through his death. We've been reconciled to God, and these are amazing things. But something else he's also given us in our ability to know Christ is that we've been given the ability to see the full picture, to understand what the entirety of the biblical narrative is. And so my hope is that this week, while you're celebrating with your family and you're thinking about the birth of the Savior and his incarnation as a man, you think about it not just as something that important, obviously ultimately important, that happened a few thousand years ago, but as the fulfillment of something that was put in place at the beginning of creation. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us so that we might know you. We thank you for your statutes so that we might live in accordance with them. And more than anything, we thank you for your son so that we might be reconciled to you through his sacrifice. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.